0: Yes, this is Ponda. Casting a new eye over culture with me, Nathan Rainsford.
1: Me, Ronnie Bindra. And me, Rob Weinberg. In this first edition, we ponder the first film in decades made entirely in the Yiddish language. It opens a window into Brooklyn's ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. It was an impossible movie to make. I mean,
2: it's still staggered that we finished it, let alone that it turned out as well as people think it did.
0: And I have been hovering in that intermediate space between life and rebirth. I've been pondering Lincoln in the Bardo, this year's Man Booker Prize winner. And I've also been finding out how a big literary prize can change the life of the book's author and its publisher.
3: The best literature is still transformative in it creates empathy, it helps you understand the world better, it, it gives you an experience of life that your own life wouldn't, alone wouldn't do.
4: And making waves we dive into the new sound of surfing from John Sampson. We want to do this differently
5: we don't want to grab a punk track, we don't want to grab anything that's done before, we want to look at it from a new
4: angle This month on the Maiden Ponder Voyage we'll be taking a look at Manasha. Menasha is the story of a father slash widower battling for the custody of his son and the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community of Borough Park, Brooklyn. Before you think this is a remix of Kramer vs. Kramer, with a slight twist, the film is actually more akin to a fly-on-the-wall docudrama that gives insights into the unfamiliar Hasidic Jewish community, while touching on the many universal themes of tradition, relationships, extended families, and community. In fact, in this particular community, it's forbidden for a man to raise his child alone, so the bungling Manasseh must either remarry or see a son raised by a conservative uncle. The film raises all sorts of questions about how one man struggles to balance a deep desire to stay true to his tradition with the feelings of his heart.
1: So Manasseh is based on the true story of Manasseh Lustig. He's a Brooklyn grocer who's never acted before. And the cast's entirely made up of Orthodox Jews, also all new to acting some doing it at considerable risk to themselves in a community where some had never seen a film, let alone acted in one. I've been talking to Manashe Lustig himself and the film's writer-producer, Alex Lipschultz, about how the film came about. Josh Weinstein, the
2: co-writer and director of the film, he knew he wanted to make a film set in the community. He comes from a documentary background, I think originally thought he wanted to make a doc, and like every good documentary filmmaker, went out into the world and started meeting people. And then eventually when he met Menashe Lustig and learned about his life story, he, he felt like that was a story he wanted to tell, but there was no way to make a documentary about it. All of the events had already happened long in the past. Other people from Menashe's life would never have been on camera. So that was when he decided to make a narrative fiction film, which he'd never done before. And he called me, given that we've known each other for a while and I've produced a bunch of narrative fiction movies and said, You met this amazing Hasidic guy, here's his life story, I want to make a movie about him, how do I do that? And things kind of went from there.
1: So the story is of a man whose wife has passed away and the rules of the community will not allow him to bring up his son alone, he has to remarry. The story is based on your life?
6: Yeah, meaning that I lived here in London. But after I grew up in New York, so after my wife passed away, I go back to to New York. So the director says that he wants to make it based in Bar Park, in New York City, the story. So that was how he made the story.
1: How close is Menashe in the film to Menashe, the real person?
6: I think very close.
1: So were there experiences from your life that you then brought into the
6: role? Of course, yes. Feelings for sure. I mean, he also agreeing that the director says that he takes a lot of points of my this but I say it's very much more uh, related to my life. But he agrees that the feelings is most of this very the same feelings. Like feelings, but not about this kind of even somebody's uh, missing a wife or family. All kinds of even losing a job or losing a spouse. The feelings is very connected and, and delivered here.
1: The community itself is quite closed and... I understand that maybe many members haven't been to see films or have TVs or mobile phones. So, was that a challenge for you to put yourself in a position of actually putting your whole community out there?
6: If you ask me about about how they take it, like it's not it's it's not negative. It's like the truth on the table. All the cards on the table.
1: That's true. But it wasn't an easy film to make in terms of finding the people to to play in it. No, so it was an impossible movie to make. I mean, it's still. Staggered
2: that we finished it, let alone that it turned out as well as people think it did. You know, most movies, when you make them, you you have a script and hire a casting director and you try to cast movie stars or professional actors and they come for auditions and it's a fairly straightforward transaction. And with this, you know, convincing people who are not even allowed to watch movies, let alone act in them, to come in and trust you and, and participate and sort of, put themselves in your hands took a very, very long time. And, you know, 99% of the Hasidic people we approach saying, hey, would you contemplate, would you consider talking to us about being in this movie, immediately had zero interest. And then even a lot of the ones that we spoke to who were interested, you do a screen test with them, and you're like, oh, you cannot act at all, no matter what kind of guidance you're given. So it took a long time to cast the movie, and we ended up restructuring a lot of the script and the story around, you know, basically retooling and reconfiguring characters to fit people we found rather than trying to find people who perfectly fit these characters because it was just
1: never going to happen. What do you hope the film will achieve? Would it open a window into a community that people know little about? Or is it to help people actually develop their own uh, feelings or thoughts about, if you like, the clash of religion with modernity?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I
1: think... First and foremost, from the most basic perspective, I
2: think it's a way for people to learn about this community, to learn more about it if they if they sort of knew about it, or to, you know, first engage with it if they really didn't know it at all, as, as many audiences don't. But I think, you know, as you're watching the film after about 15 or 20 minutes, suddenly the specificity and the strangeness and the otherness of this community starts to fade away, and it, it does become a, a movie that, that really is about how to be an individual while also fitting in a, a very closed system. And I think that no matter where you grow up or how liberal, progressive you might be, that's still a struggle that everybody has. And in that way, I think you know, it's, it's nice to see people or want people to you know, engage with the themes of the movies they would with any other film.
1: Alex Lipschultz there, the co-producer and co-writer of Manasha, speaking to me with Manasha himself. Well, we've now retired to the salubrious surroundings of the bar in the Curzon Bloomsbury to talk a little bit more about Menasha. And we're joined by Anna Castellaz, who is an art historian from Detroit with a specialization in film and visual culture. Anna, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So when I came out of Menasha, I think it was one of those films that perhaps helps you see the world a little differently. Do you think the film succeeds in that way?
7: Yeah, I definitely do. And I think film's a good form for doing that because the task of any film is to sort of bring you into the world of the protagonist. And the only way a film succeeds is if you have empathy for the main character. And so automatically in the first shot you see sort of a shot of just a group of pedestrians some of them are Hasidic Jews some of them are not but then you see this one man emerge from that group he's not wearing a coat and then you start to follow him so instantly it's like you're brought into his world but also I think just the issue of losing a child is a really relatable thing and I think that that combined with his struggle to just improve his own life I think those are two very relatable things. And so when you see that happening in a specific community that a lot of people don't know a lot about or don't understand, I think that makes it automatically relatable.
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting theme in the film generally about the individual and how the individual fits into the community or is at odds with the community. Because I suppose the, the typical narrative of Hollywood is sort of the, the great story of the individual, the great individualistic story of the person who overcomes the sort of restraints and constrictions of their community and become this great hero character. But I think the film, I think wonderfully kind of resists that narrative. And there's it's a really interesting dynamic between the individual and the community, because I don't think he ever really questions himself as a Hasidic Jew. He's always very firmly part of that community and his membership of the community is never ever in question.
1: Yes, you don't get the sense that he has any doubt about the truth of his tradition, do you?
7: No, in fact, I think that they deliberately demonstrate his desire to remain a part of it. In terms of thinking about, whether or not this film was a critique of the traditions or enforcing them, and also in terms of the issue of modernity, I kept asking myself, what if he was actually wealthy and wasn't having these other issues? Would it still be as much of a problem for him to do the things he needed to do in order to have his son back in his home. That really led me to the question of the conflict between modernity and tradition in the sense that like the economic situation at the time that these traditions were established was completely different. And so in this case you have someone who's like working a job to make ends meet, he's depressed, all of these other things that are affecting his personal life that are also playing into this issue of the law that he needs a wife in order to keep his son.
0: In the film, you're never really allowed to forget that he is also just trying to survive in New York, and that's really difficult. And I think the film is always bringing you back to that reality, you know, the fact that he works night shifts, the fact that Boss is on his back all the time. You know, Although he lives within a very unique community inside New York, it's also a film about New York and surviving in New York and living in New York in difficult conditions. And I think there's that very humanising scene where... One of the only scenes in the film in English where he's actually speaking with the other people who work in the shop with him in the back rooms. And it's a, a beautiful moment of... He steps out of the constraints that he places on himself and he suddenly opens up a little bit.
1: If this was a more conventional Hollywood picture... We would be expecting there to be some sort of feisty, liberated women in the community. We would be expecting the final scene to be Menashe sticking two fingers up at tradition (laughs) and taking his son and going out on the road on his own. But it never makes a judgment about the community or the tradition. And it never goes the way that you think a film should go.
7: I think another cool alternative Hollywood ending would be, like, he meets the woman of his dreams, who's also a Hasidic Jew, and so there's no... Anyway. (laughs) Um, You don't get the sense that there's a real critique happening of this, but you do get the tension that exists in his choice, because at the end... He doesn't actually get married, and so it's still kind of unresolved because that's actually the issue, that he doesn't want to get married. And so you get the sense that maybe that will be resolved and maybe it won't, but I think you're still comfortable with the tension, and I think everyone's comfortable with the tension.
0: Yeah, the really interesting film that I think filmmakers are doing now is able to create sort of fully realized characters without judging them. This film seems to create characters that are you know, very much living on the margins of society, and characters that are fully realized in all their quirks, yet we don't feel the filmmakers judging them in that same way that a lot of postmodern filmmakers seem to judge characters. And I thought that was very humanizing. And it gave me a lot of hope for the kind of future of film to humanize and to create compassion rather than to create distance. You know, it's one thing to point out the differences, you know, because it's very much that they live a very different life, but somehow we feel closer to them after the film rather than they live a very different life and after the film, we feel further from them.
1: Obviously this film isn't going to be a box office smash, it's not that kind of film, but what kind of effect do we hope that Manasha might have on audiences?
0: I think what I see as the purpose of art generally in the society we live in, which is very broken and is very divided, is that art should help us to overcome that wall of self that our culture around us seems to build. And it helps us to see what is common in humanity. And there's a sort of beautiful sameness to the way we all live. Regardless of the tradition we live within, or the beliefs that we hold, or the culture that we come from, there is a sort of sameness about the way we live. And I, I think the film shows that. Anyone watching it can relate, like you mentioned, Anna, before, can relate to certain issues about you know, family problems, or being feeling at odds with their community, or struggling with their beliefs. But And I think that's a very humanizing thing. And so the result is compassion, I suppose, and and connection.
7: Thinking about this in terms of a film, I think that it's almost like you can be invited in even to that sort of like situation. You can kind of go with that paradigm, I guess, like I already said, just because that's the task of a filmmaker is to sort of build the world. And I found myself really, really accepting that situation um, just because of the way that it was built. And then in a way you accept it. So I just find that really interesting.
1: Thank you, Anna, for joining us. Yes, indeed, this is the first ever edition of Ponder, casting a new eye on culture. To literature now, and the book that won this year's prestigious Man Booker Prize, Nathan has been pondering Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders.
0: In a 2013 interview with New York Times Magazine's Joel Lovell, latest Booker Prize winner George Saunders tells a story. He was once on a flight from Chicago to Syracuse in the early 2000s and thought he was about to die. There was turbulence, like a minivan hit the side of the plane, he says, and the plane began filling with black smoke. The pilot comes on over the intercom, and with a barely disguised panic in his voice, tells everyone to stay buckled. He had thought that if ever faced with death, he would handle it with aplomb, stay present in the moment, make peace with himself, and leave this world. I couldn't even remember my own name, he says. I was so completely not present. Thankfully for us, he didn't die, and the plane made it safely to the runway. It would be so interesting if we could stay like that, he tells Joel Lovell. Stay so close to death. If we try hard enough, Saunders believes, such proximity to our own mortality comes with a kind of openness unlike any other. Fast forward 14 years or so, and Saunders has won the Booker Prize for a novel about a transitional world between life and death. In it, he explores what it means to die well, and thus what it means to live well. It's February 1862, and the American Civil War rages on, whilst President Lincoln's beloved 11-year-old son, Willie Lincoln, lies dying in bed. In just a few days, February 20th, 1862, at 5 p.m., Willie dies and is laid to rest in a crypt in Oak Hill Cemetery, Georgetown. Legend has it that President Lincoln was so stricken by grief that he returned to the crypt several times alone to hold the body of his dead son and console himself. My poor boy, he was too good for this earth. God has called him home, Lincoln reportedly lamented. But in Saunders' book, Willie is not quite dead. He finds himself trapped in the bardo, a transitional realm in Tibetan Buddhist tradition. In fact, Saunders and his wife are both practicing Buddhists themselves. In this book, it's a place where the souls of men and women of all walks of life mingle, mourn, moan and meander, trying to understand each other and yearning to understand themselves. They will either ascend to Nirvana, escaping the suffering of terrestrial life, or be stuck in the hallucinatory purgatory of the bardo. The narrative form is extraordinary, as Saunders employs a kaleidoscope of voices to tell the story, both historical and fictional, sometimes contradictory, often poignant, and frequently hilarious. The main narrative thrust of the book comes via a ghostly triad of brilliant protagonists, an elderly reverend, a young gay man who has taken his life after being rejected by his lover, and a middle-aged printer who was killed before he could consummate his marriage to his young wife. You would expect a cacophony to come of this combination, but instead we get a kind of ethereal harmony. Death, the great leveller, has brought these unlikely companions together as they reflect on their lives and deaths. One of Saunders' great gifts as a writer is his deep compassion, a quality I've also been seeing as I've been reading his Folio Prize winning short story collection 10th of December. The compassion of Lincoln and the Bardo seems to come from the conviction that if we would only listen to each other's stories, each other's joys, each other's tragedies, we would be nothing but compassionate. Saunders' writing leaves you with a warm feeling about the ambient sameness of humanity. His writing is an antidote to that sometimes superior feeling we might have when we think about ourselves among the nameless crowds. What a powerful thing to know, writes Saunders, that one's own desires are mappable unto strangers. Thus though strange and experimental in form. This deep moral commitment of Saunders gives his novel a real emotional backbone. About halfway through the book, Lincoln and two of these ghosts meet, insofar as ghosts and incumbent presidents can meet. Lincoln is sat in the grass of the graveyard, unable to leave it after holding his son's body in the crypt. His grief is profound and he is struggling to process the event. The two ghosts, Hans Volman and Roger Bevins III, see him and want to coax him back to Willie's body for a gentler goodbye. One of the conceits of this world is that if a ghost co occupies the same space as a living being, that ghost has access to that living person's thoughts and feelings. The notion that washes over President Lincoln is knowledge of the death en masse caused by the fighting of the Civil War. Thus, this fictional ghostly section is followed by a series of historical accounts and letters about the thousands of dead young men who lay unburied in the plains and fields of America. One of these accounts comes from a letter from Robert Hansworthy, published in a collection called Country Letters to President Lincoln. How many more dead do you attend to make, sir, afore you was done? One minute there was our little Nate on that bridge with a fish pole, and where is that boy now? And who is it called him hither? In that notice, he saw down to Orbis. Well, sir, that was your name he saw upon it. Abraham Lincoln. It is the proximity to death in his beloved son that gives President Lincoln the openness to connect with the lives of those so seemingly far. He reflects, he is just one and the weight of it, about to kill me, have exported this grief some three thousand times so, so far. date. A mountain of boys, someone's boys, must keep on with it, may not have the heart for it. One thing to pull the lever when blind to the result, but here lies one dear example of what I accomplished by the orders I may not have the heart for it. Inhabited by strange ghosts, Saunders Lincoln thinks about what it means to live with a heart connected to the hearts of others. Lincoln in the Bardo finds great hopefulness about the possibilities of human connection in the midst of death. I think of the book itself as a kind of bardo. I came out of its grips more hopeful about the world and more committed to making it a more compassionate place. In an essay Saunders wrote on Kurt Vonnegut, long before his current book of stardom, he describes art as a kind of black box the reader enters. He enters in one state of mind and exits in another. The writer gets no points just because what's inside the box bears resemblance to real life. He can put whatever he wants in there. What's important is that something undeniable and non-trivial happens to the reader between entry and exit. The black box is meant to change us. If the change will be greater via the use of invented, absurd material, so be it.
4: Whatever the merits of Lincoln and the Bardo, one thing's certain, winning a major award like Lincoln and the Bardo did is going to take the book places. The Man Booker Prize is huge.
0: Yeah, sales will go through the roof. In uh, 2015, the prize was actually won by uh, a Jamaican man, Marlon James. He wrote the book A Brief History of Seven Killings. And in 2016, it was won by Paul Beatty with his novel The Sellout both books were published by the same publisher, One World Publications. Yes, indeed, One World Publications, Two Man Booker prizes two years in a row. A very small company was then thrust into the limelight after three decades in business. I've been along to One World's headquarters to meet its co-founder, Juliet Mabey, to find out what makes a book a winner and what it means when you win.
3: Obviously, it's a very high profile prize, not just in Britain, but all around the world. And winning the first time in 2015 had quite a big impact. It was a surprise. It was an author we were already publishing, so I think did put us on the radar. But winning a second consecutive year, I think, had a tremendous difference. Um, I love Marlon James' writing. I mean, um, his was the first novel I ever bought for our fiction list In 2009, it came out. His second novel, which was The Book of Nightwomen. And it's very rhythmic. It has a lot of Jamaican rhythm and language in it, which is just so rich and colourful. And his intellect is so strong. He writes these very big, complex books. So for me, I had a brief history of seven killings on option. And I had the first sort of, you know, third to read to make the decision and just fell in love with it straight away. It just tingles up your spine.
0: So do you think that when a book has won a prize, is there a kind of a particular prize-winning trait that books have? Are kind of trends in what wins prizes?
3: I don't think there is a trend. I mean, the Man Booker Prize in particular has a different set of judges every year. So it's very much their taste and it's what they have about 250 books to read. And it happens that the three books that we've ever had shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize have all been written by black authors. Mm. But I don't think that's what makes them stand out. I think they've all got interesting stories to tell. And I think... I think it's quite hard to predict.
0: So do you think that the, the Man Booker Prize guarantees that the book will last? Stand the test of time. Have there been Man Booker winners who maybe ha- have been won prize wonders or does it kind of guarantee a writer's stardom?
3: no it did definitely make stars of the authors if they aren't already there's no question about that i mean in our limited experience you can see that if i rang up literally anyone in the world and said do you want to do an event with marlon james or paul beatty they would say yes at the drop of a hat i mean whereas an average author promoting an average book it would be very difficult they're books that will always stay in print they will always stay on the shelf and it's a prize that benefits not just that book from the author it benefits their backlist, it benefits the next books they do. It puts them on a level of name recognition that every bookseller will recognize that the public largely will, will recognize, but it's growing in America as well in Australia and Britain. It's a huge prize. I mean, it makes millionaires of them all actually.
0: So when a new book lands on your desk, what are you looking for? As a publisher in fiction,
3: <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't say there's one specific thing, but the first thing that I really look for, and I think *Marlon James* my first novel is a good example of that, is the voice. To have something that just entrances you, it's just something that speaks. I'd almost say it speaks to your soul, but that sounds awfully corny. But it reverberates, and there's nothing that turns me off quicker than than sort of slightly staid, boring writing. But I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people look for that. The second thing I look for is really a, a book that takes me somewhere I haven't been before. So, which is why our list is, you know, I mean, it's in our name as well, One well, our list is so diverse because we're looking for stories across humanity's mm-hmm. diversity. And for me, I mean, I find it strange that publishing is now so interested in diversity or what they call inclusivity, when for us, that was what we were looking for all the time. It's really important for us that we showcase The experiences of people from all over the world and our authors now come from literally every corner of the world and we've got in our fiction list we have something like 23 languages from over 35 countries showcased in the list and the main reason to include translated fiction is to make sure we can include authors from everywhere where the writing is is good enough for us to publish. So I think having diverse worldviews and experiences of life as a human being in different contexts is really important for me.
0: I was very struck by that when reading The Sellout, because I think the impression I had, my first reaction was this is a segment of humanity or an experience, a human experience that I have not uh, read about before and that I have not experienced as a reader before. And it felt like such an education, actually, as well as being very, very entertaining as well. So I definitely see that in the in the book. Just a kind of more esoteric question to end. I was just wondering if you could work with one author in history as a publisher, and as a reader yourself, and a lover of literature, if there was one author in history you could work with, who would it be and why?
3: Um, apart from Shakespeare, obviously. Um, I've got a particular penchant for Charles Dickens, mainly because he did exactly what you're talking about. He showcased a world that the readers of the time had not seen. They didn't know what poverty looked like. His books actually led to the poor laws in Britain. So fiction can be transformative by shining a light on a dark corner of the world or a dark corner of our society, it can completely transform things. Like Cathy Come Home, the film, changed our attitude to homelessness and the way we treat homeless people and homeless people with children. And so I'd really love to work with Charles Dickens.
0: Can a book still do that? Or is it now films and TV that do that?
3: Well, if you ask the publishing association, they will say that books have a very creative role to play in all walks of culture. And the creative industries are often driven by literature. If you look at some of the best films, because they're the ones with plots, come from books. But no, I think books definitely can still do that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of genre writing, which is really for fast consumption, it's like fast food, but the best literature is still transformative in. It creates empathy, it helps you understand the world better. It, it gives you an experience of life that your own life wouldn't, alone wouldn't do. So I think books are still transformative.) Yeah.
4: Juliet Maybe of One World Publications talking to Nathan. So we're going to end each edition of PONDER with an exclusive preview of new music, shared with us by the creative talent behind it. The music for PONDER has all been created by John Sampson, aka CJ Mirror. Composer, sound designer, producer, artist, photographer, creator of surf soundtracks and binaural field recordist. He's letting us in on an exclusive track. And we've now come to the Welcome Library to find out more about it. Thanks for joining us, John. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So, yes, I've been listening to this track and I've been blown away by how original it is, especially in the genre of surf soundtracks. I grew up with Gosh. skateboard videos and 90s hip hop or punk music used to you know, provide a soundtrack. And I'm guessing it's the same with surf videos from what little I saw. Can you tell me more about how this type of music became associated with surf soundtracks?
5: Well, I kind of grew up like you, listening to that sort of stuff. That's kind of what I was into. And that's the kind of music that I used to make as well like when I was a teenager and stuff. And then um, I guess the first thing that I saw that was a, a change of that is actually a film from the 70s called Crystal Voyager. And I got into it because a band that I liked like referenced it. And I was like, oh, if they like it, it's probably cool. And I checked it out. And it's this beautiful film uh, about a guy who makes his own surfboards. He's in California. And there's that whole California scene of, you know, you expect it to be Dick Dale and that guitar sound, you know, surf tone kind of guitar stuff. But the end sequence, it's like the end eight minutes is cut to Echoes by Pink Floyd. And it's just waves, surf, shot on beautiful old film. And it's just like beautiful. And I was just like, yeah, that, that, that really works. Like I could watch that again and again and again. And, and, and I did. And then, like, fast forward a few years and I ended up um, working with a director who, he directed surf films. But they were all shot in um, places you wouldn't, and I had no idea there was a big surf scene. So it was in Ireland and Iceland and the north coast of Scotland, east coast of England. like, cold places, like, but very beautiful and very different. Everything looked, like, really different to the whole surf scene that you'd expect to see when you when we watch these old surf videos. And so we were working with a company called Finisterre who were making clothing for surfers in this crazy environment where it's like yeah, they're up there at the minute actually filming right now and it's like minus three or something north coast of Scotland and they get up and they surf and there's amazing waves there. But it's a whole different culture, it's a whole different scene. And so they they wanted to approach the music with that difference and so actually made me write an essay they made me write like uh, a guy there who who was at the company was like uh, we we want to do this differently we don't want to grab a punk track we don't want to grab anything that's done before we want to look at it from a new angle because that's how we're looking at it that's how the surfers are working they they kind of have the whole culture is different in in kind of a profound way the way that they approach their it's like a full on lifestyle thing still it's all consuming and so yeah it was like looking at the pace of the way that it's not like you just quickly run and do a surf. They, like, they go searching. It's all about chasing tides, chasing light. This All the films that have these titles because it's about chasing these little pockets of great surf, which are in hard-to-reach places. Uh, it's cold, it's hostile. The waves are, like, pretty amazing. Like, you can't believe how big they are. They They're up there with, you know, more famous spots, like in Australia or in Hawaii or west coast of... Like they're all around the world. Like they, they have ama- amazing, like, world-class waves. So we were talking about it being more atmospheric, like, looking towards artists and musicians that came from those environments already. Already, So, like, Boards of Canada, Sigur Rós, music that was already evocative of these kind of environments and these kind of... Um, they're, e- they're epic locations. You know, it's, cl- it's cliffs. It's big. Bru- yeah, it's really brutal. Yeah, yeah, it is. But in a, in a very um, beautiful way and and it's all quite isolated and um the wind isn't like a, a fresh wind, you know. It's like freaking hammer. It's a hammering wind that strips the moisture out of your skin, and the, the sea is cold, and it's and it's brown or it's grey or it's dark. You know, it's not. I'm not paying a very but it's but it's so beautiful, and that's what draws people to it. And, and it's been growing and growing and growing and growing because the more people see it on these films that I've been lucky enough to be a part of, the more people want to go and experience
4: it for themselves. It sounds incredible. In this case, both seem to be going hand in hand. Rugged environment that you talk about. Would you say that people are moving away from the aesthetics of traditional surf films, where it's over-polished and these guys with six packs and toned bodies surfing, to actually just more about the surfing technique and nature, and getting back to the roots maybe of surfing, which was very natural. It started was it in Hawaii. I don't know. Uh, they too much about service history. Is there a method no, in this madness? No, Yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and
5: the more that I get to know, because I've come at it from an outsider, um, the way that I ended up getting into this was um, my old band, I put a track up on SoundCloud um, and I was meant to make it private and just share, share it with some friends, but um, I, I put it in public by mistake. And in that time, a director heard it. And then sent that link off to the people who was working with on the film, and was like, I want this song on, to be part of my film. By which time, I changed it back to be private, and they were like, the link's dead. Where's the song gone? He's like, I don't get it. Like, they just put it up. So he got in touch with my manager. They ended up, I ended up on the phone with him for like two hours, and that was it. We've done 20 films together.
0: the lost weekend there by cj mirror and that's available soon on the new album static more information via cj mirrors instagram at cj underscore mirror that's m-i-r-r-a and if you have any thoughts comments
4: music art or ponderings that you want to share just go to the ponder facebook page facebook.com forward slash ponder and let us know what you think of the show and if there's anything else you'd want to ponder further
1: So that's about it from us for now. We'll be back with a second Ponder podcast in a month's time. Don't miss it.